normal. Okay, welcome guys to Spear Normal. It's your host, Adam, and uh, Surfiel is working on a music project right now, and he will be back next week. But joining me tonight is Professor Wham. And we had Professor Wham on all the way back, uh, I think it was in January, I'm pretty sure. So it hasn't been that too long ago. But uh, Professor Wham is rejoining us tonight to talk about some uh, things that happened in, in your past, Professor Wham, like uh, an experience of actually knowing a serial killer. And we're going we're gonna to kind of get into the weeds on this. So the serial killer in question is Robert Bordella. It's Bordella. Bordella. <laughs> Bordella. Okay. Yeah. Uh, he was known as the Kansas City Butcher, also known as the Collector. I'm just reading this from the Book of Knowledge uh, Wikipedia page. And uh, he apparently was a kidnapped, raped, tortured, and murdered six, at least six men between 1984 and 1987 in Kansas City, Missouri. Mm-hmm. Uh, I read an article that you sent to me uh, about him, and it's some pretty, uh, pretty gruesome stuff. Um, yeah, it's uh, extremely bad. Yeah. So... I guess let's talk about like what kind of like the details of his crimes, what it was that he did, and then we'll kind of get into how you actually knew this person. Okay. Um, Well, it's actually the details of the crimes that I don't like to talk about that much, but because it's very upsetting, but um, it is indeed. um, He, he, the way I try to describe him to people is think of him as sort of a Jeffrey Dahmer on steroids. Um, And what I mean by that is that um, he kept, uh, he would, he would capture some of his victims. And, and what's, what's interesting about, I guess, about his victims is that in most cases, when you have a a sexual sadist, because that's what he was, Right. Uh, when in most cases, when you have a sexual sadist, you have an individual who is preying on individuals who are weaker or smaller than they are. You know, or younger. You know, men on women, or you know, or men on, or you know, adults on young people. You know, that kind of thing. And with the exception of one person, all of his known victims, and we, and there may be some others that we don't know about. Um, this has this was always implied, um, but the ones that they have evidence for and that he admitted to, um, all of them were adult males uh, that were you know in their late twenties, early thirties. So they and he wasn't a big man. I mean, he was kind of overweight a little bit, but he mm-hmm. wasn't like a huge person, and so he had to find ways of. Um, of uh, subduing them and, and maintaining control over them as adults. And so what he did was he, he used drugs. He used a lot of different drugs, a lot of controlled substances that were actually very difficult to get. And it was through drugs and kind of a sy- systematic torture over time 
that he gained control over people and he would keep them alive for a long time and do this. Um, and in fact, his, my understanding is that his first two victims uh, died of their injuries. He did not actually kill them. And, uh, um, and, then, he, and then one guy he did finally kill, um, mostly because they were sort of in his way. He didn't want, mm-hmm. he di- he didn't want um, a contractor who was coming to the house to, to, house to, to find him, to deal with him. So he just like tied a plastic bag over his head and let him die. But I mean, the, the kinds of things that he did, and the Wikipedia article is really very, um, it's not very um, detailed in terms right. of what he did. There is, a, there is one, if, I mean, for people who are really into this sort of thing, which I'm not actually, there is one true crime book that has been written by him called Buried Rights. It's, it's R-I-T-E-S. This was, this was written by him? No, it's written about him. About him, okay. And I will say it's poorly written. Um, it, it was written in the middle 90s. It evinces, I mean, if you read it now, it evinces a, um, I don't even know if it's still in print, actually. But it evinces a, a really kind of unfortunate, bizarre paranoia about gay people generally, <laughs> which is kind of unfortunate to read now, you know, when you're reading it. Sure. Um, the and and also the the author as, as if and somehow like all gay people are serial murderers or something. yeah or yeah. something I mean it's well there's just even even without that I mean there are some gross stereotypes about the gay community generally and uh, um, and also gross stereotypes about occultism and about um, witchcraft and things like this the thing the thing to remember about when Bob Burdella was uh, caught or when he, you know, which was 1988 or 1989, it was right at the beginning of what would become the witch craze thing. And, you know, it would, it, it, it was, it actually peaked in the early nineties, but satanic panic, the, the satanic panic was just right. beginning in the late eighties. And, and, and Bob had, had amassed one of the largest collections. I think it was at one time, um, appraised at like the fifth largest collection of antiquities in the, in the, in the country in North America at the time. And so his house was just stuffed with all of this weird crap, like from Tibet and from India and from, you know, much of it stolen, you know, indigenous stuff that had been stolen, but because of all the weird crap that he had in his house, um, the uh, the police at the time just made the assumption that you know he was into you know satanic stuff or whatever, and he wasn't. He, he just li- he liked weird stuff, but um, but he, he he in my experience of him, he was not into anything. In fact, I asked him once, you know, what's you know, I asked him what's well, what sign were you born under? You know, what astrological sign? He goes, oh, I was born under the money sign. That's what he said. <laughs> So, you know, he was not, he was not like into uh, uh, spiritual stuff at all. Yeah. He wasn't into like new age. He, he had a, he had a, he had a shop. I understand like it was like Bob's Bazaar Bazaar. Right. Was the name yeah. of it? Yeah. And they sold all kinds of things in it. And, and it was, it was in a flea market, but anyway, so uh, let me to, f- to finish about what he did. Um, so if you want to know the details of what he did, 
that book has some details in it because it reproduces some of his diaries. He kept copious diaries and journals in which he recorded everything that he did to every single person. And uh, like minutely. And uh, so if, if for people who have that kind of weird purient interest, you can kind of check that out. Well, there's, there's a lot of that. I mean, a lot of people are really into true crime. I mean, I'm pretty into it myself. Um, I mean, the, the whole serial killer thing kind of fascinates me as well. It just, it makes you really think about just like, how does somebody like, you know, get to that point, (laughs) somebody like him, it's, it's, it's a pretty fascinating thing, but it's some, you can't dwell on it too much because it's some pretty dark stuff. Right. Right. And, and to be clear, he was, he was not a cannibal. I mean, you know, he, he, he wasn't like Dahmer. He was not like Dahmer in that way. He was, he, he did not, I mean, what I was able to determine later on, you know, and this was later on, obviously, you know, after reading this book and just, you know, thinking about it and, you know, even talking to him a couple times while he was in prison and, you know, stuff like that. What I was able to figure out was that um, the killing part was not something that he was that into. It was the, the torturing part at the beginning. Yeah. And then, you know, sometimes, you know, in a sense, and this sounds so awful, but sometimes, you know, people died as a result of that. And sometimes they had to be killed, you know, as a result of that. And, but then the other part of it, although this was the more strenuous part of it, the other part of it was um, disposing of the bodies and kind of pulling it over on the police because he hated the police. He hated the police. And there were some actual good reasons for his dislike of the police in Kansas City at the time. Um, But he, you know, as a gay man and also just, um, I mean, the other thing that people have to remember is at the time when he committed these crimes, when they initially arrested him, they held him for sodomy Mm -hmm. because they had to prove everything else. And um, at the time in Missouri, um, simple, you know, they didn't always obviously, you know, enforce this law, but simple sodomy, you know, which was gay sex, essentially simple sodomy um, could get you 15 years in the state penitentiary. So uh, that that's kind of the nature of, of sort of the politics, the sexual politics, you know, that existed with the police at the time. And he had had, um, he had been a minor, you know, earlier in his life when he had first come to Kansas City, um, he had, he had sort of dabbled on a minor, in a minor way with certain types of drug trafficking. So, um, you know, he was known to the police for that. And yeah, he, but he would, because he had connections to the police department, um, he was also aware of their corruptions. And at the time, I don't know how the Kansas City, um, Missouri Police Department is now, but at the time it was a fairly corrupt institution. There was no independent oversight of them at all. Uh, They sort of operated uh, as an independent uh, government agency and uh, they were known for the brutality and they were known for the racism and for their homophobia and for their participation in drug and, and human trafficking from time to time, As certain members, not obviously not the whole force, but you know, they, so there was corruption 
within the, the police department. And so he detested them. He considered them all to be hypocrites. And so if he could, if he could like commit a, this crime and then dispose of the bodies in the way he did, which was to cut them up and put them in, you know, in garbage bags over a period of several weeks, not all at once even, but over a period of several weeks, you know, so that the bodies would never be found, except for those parts that he kept in the house and buried in his backyard. <laughs> um, I'm not, la I'm laughing because it's so gross, you know, not because right. I think it's funny. Um, but, um, you know, his ability to pull, pull that over, you know, the eyes of the police, that was the other way in which he kind of got a thrill, I think. You know, yeah, but the actual killing of people, I don't think that, from what I can tell, that's, that, that's not what thrilled him. Yeah. It was a sexual sadist kind of thing. And, yeah. And kind of like having like a, um, having one up on the police. And this is all going on at the same time. I mean, not too far from Kansas City, you know, is the, the BTK killings are going on all around at the same time. And, you know, Dennis Rader was very much that same kind of personality. Uh, yeah. I mean, in, in the sense that, yeah, I mean, he, uh, although he, he was more of a stalker. Um, yeah. Um, you know, Berdella was more of an opportunist. He, he didn't go out actually looking for victims. Victims would sort of come to him and they would. And in fact, well, in fact, the book talks about this and, 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 and he talked about this in some of his interviews that, um, you know, people would come to his house and then it would just occur to him, oh, you know, this is per somebody I could do this with or whatever. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And not everybody that he dated or that he saw or brought home did he do this with. I mean, did he have any steady relationships with any like any other men? I mean, did he have like a boyfriend or anything that was like not 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 that I ever knew. Yeah. Not that I ever knew. In fact, um the 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 thing that has always stuck with me mm -hmm. is that the 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 day before he was arrested and this is you know, I was talking to you earlier I think that on some level he set up the the last thing that ha that he did to sort of maybe be caught but the day before he was arrested I was working at this place where um, I had a part time job I had started back to school. Um, to eventually get my graduate degrees. And I was working at this part-time place in Kansas City, Missouri. And I worked as kind of like the, uh, uh, the office manager. You've been to a lot of places in your life, Professor William. Oh, I, well, I, well, I grew up part of my life in Kansas City. So yeah. we were talking about you were lived in Chattanooga, where I was from. Too, oh, yeah, so that, yeah, that was when I was young. Yeah, yeah. when I was yeah. a little kid. But this is when I was an adult. And, uh, and, uh, and his boss, my boss, my boss, uh, there at the, the job where I was working had his power of attorney and was also a business partner of his on certain things, you know, consultant, management consultant and things like that. And so Bob would come by, you know, like every, like maybe twice a month and, and they would talk about legal stuff and business plans and, mm -hmm. and Harold always did his taxes and stuff like that. Well, anyway, um, the, the, the day before he was arrested, um, I, he came in and I was there at the front desk and, and he, he had an appointment with my boss, but he had to wait a little bit because my boss was always talking to somebody. He was just, I, used to, I remember he was talking on the phone 
And so there was always like 10 minutes or so that you had to wait. And so anyway, I was talking to Bob and Bob started telling me these really, he started saying, yeah, I'd heard that you had gotten a cold and I was really concerned about you. And he, he had brought me some over the counter like medication, which I didn't take because I actually didn't need it because I had my own, but he had like brought me some medicine and, and he said, um, and I just, I just really, at one point he said, I just always have really wanted to tell you that I've always considered you to be one of my best friends, hmm. which was weird because it was like, I didn't know Bob had friends <laughs> in my yeah. mind, you know, I, I thought, really? And I said, really? You know, and he said, yeah, he says, I've always sort of been able to talk to you about, you know, things that mattered to me, like, you know, my beads and my relationships. And I guess we had, you know, when I worked for him, I guess we had sort of, you know, talked about that stuff. But for me, we had talked about it on a very surface level, you know, so making small talk kind of thing. Yeah, making small yeah. talk, you right, know. So, right. so but but apparently for him those were important conversations. So, yeah. you know, um you know, so it was just really weird because because he said that the next which was on a Friday, the next day which was on which is a Saturday, which is when I usually work for him when I did, I decided that I would go in and see him. Because I hadn't been to the store for a while. And so I went in and uh, I went in about 1130 and he, he was renting space to an, a, to a young jeweler, a, a new, a, a, another artist at the time that was sort of in the same shop area, but he was like renting a part of the shop area for himself. You know, now he's an established jeweler somewhere, but, you know, and, and I walked in, his name was Russ and I walked in and Russ said, um, is it possible that you could like man the front for a little bit because Bob left for lunch and he's never come back. Mm, okay. And I was, and I was like, okay. And so I did for about an hour, but then I had to go because I had planned to work. Right. <laughs> so, so I said, Russ, I really got to go. You know, I can't. So, so Russ was like, okay, fine. I'll try to figure out how to do this myself. And so I left and 15 minutes later, the place was raided. Um, by the police, um, they were shutting. They were shutting the whole his store down, and everybody, everybody that was there, all the work, all the you know, Russ and all the customers, they rounded them all up and took them to the police station. And so I missed that by like fifteen minutes. Well, what had happened was um, his last victim had gotten loose and gotten out of the house, out of his house. Yeah, I had read that. Yeah. Uh-huh. And, and, and what they had done, and, and he had gone to a neighbor, and his neighbor, uh, his neighbor had called the police, and then the police called Bob at the store and said, um, we can either arrest you in your store in front of all your customers, or you can come home and be arrested here. Wow. So that's, and that was before they like dug up the backyard and stuff. So yeah, they had said, apparently they had set up a task force. Uh, I guess that, 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 that had investigated him. That's what I'm seeing on the, um, on the the wiki page. Yeah. Well, he had, he, he was suspected in the disappearance of a couple people. Yeah. And, uh, and that's what I mean. It's like, you know, it's, we, we don't really know. I mean, part of the, part of the conversation that I had with the police later on, because I, I mentioned to you earlier that I, I was never actually interrogated by the police as such. 
uh, about it, but because there were a couple of other people who knew me and who were business partners of him who had known him, who intervened on my behalf. I don't know why, but they just did. But the police obviously wanted to talk to me too, because mm-hmm. I had known him for almost a decade in various places, you know, around town. And I'd worked for him and I'd been in his house once. And, you know, so I, I knew him. Wow. <laughs> and yeah. And um, so obviously they wanted to talk to me. So um, after, you know, after he had confessed and everything, and I think he was in prison actually at, at, by that time, because it didn't take them too long to do all of that. Right. Because um, he confessed. But um, a policeman came over to my apartment and sat and talked to me for about an hour and a half. And it was just a weird interview. I mean, it was, it was not about the crimes that Bob had committed. It was, he brought, first of all, he brought some, see, Bob also took photos of all of his victims Yeah. at various stages of their victimness. And, and, and uh, (laughs) yeah. And, and also of them being dead and stuff. And, and there were several photos um, in the in the pile of photos that they found that were obviously taken by third parties that Bob was in the photo that that but but the way in which the photo was done there had to have been other people present okay uh-huh. so um, and there were other photos of people at least there was at least one photo or several photos of one person that appeared to possibly be dead. They couldn't tell for sure because you can't tell yeah. for sure, mm-hmm. but, but appeared to possibly be dead, but he, he was not any of the people that had been identified. And he did, was not one of the people that was missing. Did they later identify him? They've never identified him. Oh shit. Wow. And, and, but anyway, um, um, they, uh, so this guy, this policeman brought some of these photos which you're not explicit. Those were like evidence photos. So he like brought some of this stuff to my house, which I really didn't appreciate looking at. And, um, and he was asking me questions that at the time didn't make any sense, but now, you know, later on, I figured out there were clearly about they were, he was trying to establish whether or not Bob, it, whether I knew whether or not, Bob was part of a larger ring of people, uh-huh. like a sadomasochistic ring of people that may have been involved in murder, or that uh, that um, especially they were interested in where he got some of the drugs that he used, because some of the drugs were are are, are controlled substances. They were very difficult to get. Some of them could only be administered intravenously, or with a hypodermic needle. Um, and, uh, they're not the kind of thing that you can get off the street. What are we talking about? Like what kind of drugs? Uh, well, there, there are certain tran- types of, there's certain kind of tranqu- tranquilizers, um, certain types of tranquilizers, sedatives. Um, and, um, you know, and at the, at this time, by the way, at this time, this was right during the same time periods, like the, you know, the spring of 1988 or something like that. It's right during the time period when the trials 
for the, the, the Franklin scandal, which we'll talk more about in a little bit, were just, were just either, they were just kind of peaking then. Um, and so there was, there was this, uh, you know, and that was in Omaha. So that's not very far. And for those people who know. No, not at all. Those people who know the who know about the drug hubs in the Midwest, they know that that there is a direct pipeline between Omaha and Omaha and Kansas City and then further places up north. So um, Omaha is like a is like a distribution point from Kansas City, even more than St. Louis from Kansas City um, to up through the northern plains that goes up into the Northern Plains from Omaha. So Omaha is like, at least at the time, was like a central drug hub. And so I think they were trying, I think he was trying to determine whether Bob was connected to the drug trafficking angle of the, of the Franklin scandal or not. I, I, I bet he had, he must have had some kind of tangential thing to do with it. I, I would almost, you would almost think that he probably would. He had to have known about it. Um, and the reason I say that is because there's, there's evidence. I mean, when we talk more about the Franklin scandal, I can talk a little bit more about this. But there is evidence that even I was aware of in my small capacity early in the 1980s um, when um, I lived on the street for a while before I got my life together. Um, I was aware of, of um, human and drug trafficking um, activity that was happening in, in the part of Kansas City that I was living in, because I was specifically warned by people on the street that I knew and, and also by um, people that were coming out of this one um, mental health institution, which by the way, was shut down. Um, it was a county state institution. But there were people in that institution who, when they came out, you know, and I knew of them from, you know, I had some drug and alcohol problems of my own at the time, but they were very specific about warning me away from certain places uh -huh. um, because, because this type of trafficking was known to occur there. And, um, and I mean, some of those places don't exist anymore. One of them was right off the plaza. Yeah, the, the, the building that this happened that that was pointed out to me no longer exists they've torn it down but um you know so so when i when i found this out about bob you know and that connection or you know that possible connection i was like you know the police knew about all this stuff because even in the early 80s the police knew about it and they didn't do anything about it in fact they some of them participated in it they didn't do anything about it you know, and so I, I'm afraid yeah. that I kind of, I kind of, you know, yeah. that's another, that's another aspect. Yeah. You know, I mean, that's, the, you know, that, that's part of the reason why, you know, while as, as heinous as everything that Bob did and that Bob was in those circle in, in what he did, he was not incorrect <laughs> about that level of corruption, mm -hmm. you know, at all. So, you know, um, I'm, I, I've, and I've, you know, I've just uncovered evidence here and there, you know, it's all very iffy and everything, but anyway, the, uh, I'm, because, but that sort of evidence always is, you know, it's, 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 it's always, you know, especially when law enforcement is involved in it. 
Um, I think that probably the thing that convinced me um, of, of all of this stuff is, you know, in, in my later life, I have come to, I, I realized um, in looking back at evidence that was even right before me that I did not recognize at the time because I was naive. I didn't have any, you know, I didn't have any firsthand experience of this stuff. So I didn't recognize it when I saw it. But now I know that, for example, one really close friend of mine um, that I went to high school with, uh, her mother was trafficked. She was a, a, an, an indigenous woman who had been trafficked to her father. And she herself was being, um, was being set up to be trafficked. I didn't realize this at the time. Um, but now I look back and I see all the signs. I understand now exactly what was going on in that household. Because I've had this explained to me by people who have come out of those situations you know, this is what you see. This is what you look for. This is, this is what, this is, these are the kinds of relationships that you will observe. And then, you know, and it would be like, oh my God, that's what was going on here. <laughs> you know I mean? It's like, oh my God. And I didn't see it, you know? Um, and, um, you know, and I, and I know, and I had another really good friend who has since passed whose mother trafficked her. This stuff goes on. I mean, it, it, it's a very real thing. And just to kind of just say this, like we've talked a lot about on this show, we've talked a lot about, uh, about QAnon and what, like the, what, they, what they talk about. And like the thing about QAnon is that like it's based in some form of reality. Like it's, it's total crap, but it's based in a reality that is uh, actually going on mm -hmm. and you can, you know, you can see how that has been weaponized into QAnon. But the thing is, is that like this stuff does happen and it's very, very real. And I mean, it's gone on since the beginning of civilization. I mean, let's just face it, you know, it's, it's horrible. At well, at least to some degree, certainly. Mm -hmm. I mean, I mean, obviously now we have, there are, there are ways of doing this on sort of an industrial level, right. <laughs> you know, um, right, right. but, um, but you know, the, the whole thing, the whole thing with, with Bob, I mean, Bob, I think was connected to it, not by his victims um, because the victims um, for the most part were older men, mm -hmm. you know, they, so they didn't need to be trafficked, you know, he could find them in various places. Like you said, he was an opportunist. He was an opportunist, but I do, th I do think that he may have had connection to the, the drug trafficking part of it because he was connected to drug trafficking anyway, generally, um, because of earlier in his life. And some of the drugs that he used, I don't think he could have gotten any other way, honestly. So... Um, you know, he, he used to sort of, you know, pride himself. He would always, he would always show up, you know, like he would always show up with drugs, like to parties and stuff that no one knew how he got them. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, it's like, where did you get you know, And he was always assumed that we wanted to take them, which, you know, I've never been much of a drug taker. So, you know, it's, I've always been I have more problem with alcohol. Okay. So, so you knew him from this place that you worked at. But you you actually would go and like hang out with this guy too, is that what you're saying? 
Well, what happened was uh, where I first met him, I first met him um, in the early 80s when I worked at a alternative women's bookstore in Kansas City, okay. which, of course, among the various alternative um, communities that it served was the gay community, obviously. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and it was there that I met Bob because Bob would come into the store sometimes. He was a gay man. And so he'd come into the store sometimes and, and he had established his store. And so we, he would, we had like this newsletter that we would put out like every twice a month or something. And he would advertise in it. And so, and he, you know, he was, he had originally been a, a, a student at the Kansas City Art Institute. And so uh, he was sort of, at least tangentially connected to the alternative kind of uh, art crowd in, in Kansas city, you know, like he liked, he liked avant-garde art and he liked jazz and, you know, so he, he was, he was in those alternative communities, you know? And so that's where I first met him um, was in in that kind of a context. Um, And, and then, uh, you know, through his store, uh, there were a lot of us who were kind of into like alternative spirituality, you know, and, and, uh, you know, neo-paganism, you know, things like that. Right. And so he, he always, he had stuff like that, that, you know, that he would sell in the store that you could go there and you could find cool stuff. And the one thing that he did have at the store that was really cool was, you know, now it's fairly common to be able to go to like hobby stores or, or exotic stores and get all kinds of really cool beads that you can use to make things, you know? Well, he was one of the first people in Kansas City to do that, to have this whole collection of beads. And these were trade beads. These weren't just like glass beads or plastic beads. These were like genuine trade beads from all over the world, from Africa, from Asia, from India, from South America. And, and, and you could go and, you know, purchase them and, and then string them, you know, do whatever you wanted to. He, and I, I will say he loved trade beads. When he would talk about trade beads, he was a different person. He would, he would go into this other place. His face would change. He, it was just, I think that he, I think he really actually genuinely loved whatever these were, these, you know, and what those meant to him, which was, I think, the ability to be free, to travel, to be in other places other than where he was, you know. Um, maybe he was disassociating, I don't know, but, you know, um, but it was, uh, it was really, the beads were cool. And so we would, so we would go and hang out and do that. And so that's how I got to know him over time. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, sometimes then he would come to parties that friends of mine would have and, and, wow. um, and, 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 and yeah. And, you know, and sometimes he would come and he would be fine. And sometimes he would become, and he, I remember once he came with this younger kid that I guess was, he was trying to inculcate in a relationship. Now he never, I don't know that he, he did, this kid did not end up dead or anything. Okay. (laughs) You know, um, this, um, I don't know that he actually did anything bad with this kid, but, um, but he came and he was on some kind of weird drugs. I don't know what they were, but, um, 
he was really weird that night. You know, there was this whole kind of weird negative crap that was coming out of him. And we found a way to, we found a way to um, convince him to leave, but it was one of those situations where you had to be very careful how you did it because you had the sense that he might get violent. You know, there was just kind of, there was this edge. About how long before he got arrested was this? Oh, it was several years. Several years. Okay. So you knew him. You knew him a rather long time. I knew him the better part of a decade. Wow. Okay. Yeah. And in, and like I said, in a variety of situations. And then when I went to work for him, which, um, you know, ironically was during the time when he was killing people. Mm-hmm. Um because I, I mean, and I didn't know that at the time, obviously, but when I went to work for him, um, it was actually a really important thing because at the time um, I needed a job. I needed a job really bad. Um, I wanted to try to go back to school and, and I had lost a job, which I haven't lost very many jobs in my life, but I was actually fired from this one job and um, which actually was fine because <laughs> I hated it, but um, I needed a job and he gave me one. And it was, it, it was a lifesaver. And um, he was always, for me at least, I mean, you know, he would go through periods where he was really moody and strange. And I guess I have a high tolerance for strange. Because, um, but he, uh, he was always fair. He always paid me what he said he was going to pay me. Sometimes I would take money and sometimes I would take trade, you know, like. Okay. So you were working in. In his store. In his store. Okay. And I, and I would do all the things you do in retail, you know, Um, you know, wait on customers, um, do displays, um, you know, you know, uh, uh, categorize things. Like he always had thousands of these trade beads you had to separate and, you know sort and uh you know just stuff like that just the normal stuff that you do in a a retail shop and uh, we talk and he he did have this habit of talking down to people he was kind of um if he thought that you were stupid you know or he didn't really know what to think of you he'd sort of talk down to you in a patronizing way but he never did that with me um, I guess if he thought you were smart or something or he liked you, I just wouldn't do that. There are lots of people that I know now that, that knew him at various times and, and, you know, now tell me that they, they, they knew that there was something wrong with him, you know, that they just, that he, that he just had this dark energy and they didn't like him. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I can, I did witness dark energy from time to time but I, but I also, there also wasn't dark energy there all the time, at least not when I was around him. So I, you know, what's weird to me is that I, you know, I saw him, I guess I see him more as a whole person, uh, you know, the different sides of him. And so when he was arrested, it was very difficult for me um, to be able to reconcile that is what I want to ask because that's like the big question is knowing this guy as intimately as you did. Well, I mean, as, as then, intimately as one knows an associate. Sure. Sure. Right. Right. But I mean, you, 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 
you, you know, you had parties with this guy, you worked for him, you, you knew him. I mean, and, and, and I think from what you're saying is that like, you actually, in a way, like kind of liked this guy. You thought he was aspects a, of him, aspects of him. You thought maybe that he was a decent person. And then you find out that this guy is a serial killer and he's done horrible things to people and killed them in horrible ways. It's like, I mean, you're the only person that I can ask is because you're literally the only person that I know that knows a serial killer. It's like, how did you reconcile this? Well, I, I don't know that, I don't know that I do. Right. Um, I, I think that um, in the first place, um, you know, when, when you find this out about somebody that, you know, I mean, I can only imagine what his mother went through, mm-hmm. you know, um, when you find out something like this about someone, you know, in a way, you know, if they are a murderer in a way, they murder themselves too. you know, they murder the person that you thought you knew. And, um, so it's kind of, it's kind of like a, a death in that sense. Um, and, and, but what happens to the, with the public is that you kind of get, you know, there are lots of victims to some, when someone does something like this, they're the obvious victims, you know, the obvious victims of the victims themselves and then the victims' families, you know, and, but there's a wider swath of victims and those are all the people who knew this individual um, and who maybe had dealings with them because all of a sudden our, our reputations are somewhat at question at some people, not everybody, obviously, but some people will say, well, how could you not have known? Because it's a question you ask yourself. How could I not have known? How could I have missed this? Well, the truth is, is that, you know, serial killers go way out of their way to make sure you don't know. Mm-hmm. That's part of the gig. Right. And, right. and, and in his case, he was smart. He was, you know, he was almost a Hannibal Lecter, like smart kind of guy. And so he, you know, like not all serial killers are, some are really sloppy and they're just not like that, but he was smarter. And so he figured out ways of compartmentalizing and keeping things secret, but also keeping himself compartmentalized, you know, but also if you think about it, you know, just be, we all know some weird people. We all know people who have darkness. We all, you know, especially those of us who are in the paranormal community or in alternative communities, we, we know, you know, we deal with people who've had lots of trauma of various types. Yeah, I can absolutely vouch for that. That's for sure. And so we don't necessarily go around assuming that every dark person we meet is a serial killer. And, 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 God, for, <laughs> and, God, and God forbid that we ever do. You know, you you don't, you don't assume that um, the people that you know are that. And um, that those are the kinds of things I had to tell myself. I had to realize for myself. And I also decided at a certain point, and I know that this is not something everyone could decide, but it was kind of a spiritual practice for me to do this. I decided at a certain point that, um, because of the fact that I had to talk to him sometimes, because I still worked, you know, at a place where, you know, he called and stuff. 
um, I just decided that, you know, I had been his friend as much as he had a friend. <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, as much as he had any friends. I had been a friend, apparently, because he thought I was. And I decided I was going to remain one, whatever that meant. And not because I agree with anything he did, because I don't at all. In fact, there's one thing I do have to tell you, because this is where your question became very acute for me at a certain point. Um, I was, I decided I would read that true crime book of his, you know, about not his, that, that he, that was written about him that I, right, I mentioned. Right. And so I was reading the book and, you know, like I said, it has portions of it that are part of the diary, you know, uh, that he kept. And so I was reading and all of a sudden I realized something while I was reading it. All of a sudden I, I went through some dates where he had written some stuff down and I remembered something. I was able to place myself in the diary because what had happened was, and he describes this at a certain place. I can't remember like what page it's on or anything, but I re suddenly remembered that one Saturday I had been working, um, sorting beads and he had been, he had gone, he had gone to lunch and he had come back and he had come back a little bit late. And when he came back, his mood had changed and he was very sullen. He was kind of, uh, he, he, he just wouldn't talk anymore. And he was just sort of all sort of uh, pulled in on himself and, and sort of an, kind of an asshole, actually, you know, even with customers and just in a bad mood. And I also noticed that there was the smell that I would occasionally get a whiff of. And I couldn't put my finger on it, what the smell was, even though I, re I recognized it. I couldn't put my finger on what it was because it was intermittent and it was just very periodic. You know what I mean? It was just like, you know, and I couldn't, I couldn't remember what it was at the time. But when I was reading the book, and this, of course, this was several years later, when I was reading the book, all of a sudden, I remembered all of that because what he was describing is how he had gone home from lunch on this particular date. And it was the date he'd gone home for lunch and he had had difficulty dismembering a body. Oh my God. And he had come back. And I, when I read that, I realized, Oh my God, that's what I had smelled. Jeez. And I mean, I, I threw the book across the room. It was just like, I cannot read any more of this book right now. You know? And I just sat there. I, I sat and I sat for a long time because it was just like, you know, just shuddering, you know, just remembering because I have smelled dead body before. So, but it was just so faint at the time that I couldn't, right. you know, it, it, it didn't. And so I just was like, and so, and so that's when it sort of became very acute for me. I had to sort of just really kind of, how am I going to reconcile this? How am I going to live with this knowledge? Cause that's really what it is about. How do you live with this knowledge because you know you're living with things that you'd prefer not to know um and i realized i didn't know how <laughs> you know i wasn't going to i wasn't going to get locked into hatred yeah. uh, about a person anybody 
Um, and, you know, I, I was doing, a, I did have a spiritual practice at the time, and, and I, like I still do. And um, so I just decided that I would not make a decision about it right then. I would just sort of let it let myself go through the feelings and the process just to see sort of where that led. And, you know, it's actually become a really important tool because um, I have the ability now to listen to people tell me really awful things and I can, and I can, and I can hold it. I can hold it. uh, The awful thing. And I'm talking about either them sharing their trauma, you know, or, or them telling me, I've had confessions, of, I've, pedophiles have given me their confessions. Uh, I'm sure that's, that, I mean, that's something that's just got a way on you. Well, there are ways of releasing it. Yeah. Um, because it isn't my, it isn't mine. You know, it isn't, you know, I, I am carrying the stories of a whole bunch of people, but they are not my stories, you know, they're, so it's not a burden really. It's, it's, but what, what it has told me is that there are lots, you know, it's not that, it's not that, (laughs) thank God, very few of us actually do what Bob did. Thank God. However, however, the caveat to that is that the impulses, the impulses that that he that became twisted and perverted in him, the impulse of, of the impulse of anger of wanting to 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 harm someone else, the impulse of of revenge, the impulse of thwarted desire, you know, mm-hmm. and what that leads to. Lots of us have those issues. <laughs> So for me, basically, it was like um, it's become sort of a, a spiritual practice because, um, you know, there's, you know, it's like I told my mom at one point, I said, you know, if any of us need redemption, it's people like him. <laughs> you know what I mean? I'm, and I'm not responsible for that redemption at all. That's not what I mean. What I mean is that I don't have to. I don't have to project my fear or disgust or anger towards him because I didn't do those things. You were just tangentially around it at a certain point. Right. Yeah. I mean, you know, I, I was one of the people, I was one of the other people in his life. Yeah. Um, and I was not in his victim profile. So in his, his, so I was, I was in a different category for him. And apparently I was in a more positive category for him, which is weird, but you know, it's, it's, it's true apparently. So um, I wonder with people like that, that there is that kind of compartmentalization that is going on that like he can be a certain person around you, but then around like other gay men are obviously around his victims. He's another type of person completely. Well, another part of him comes out. I mean, we yeah. see that we see this happening in other, 
in other serial killers. I mean, one of the, the serial killers that I think of, I can never, never remember his Israel keys. He's kind of a mysterious guy, Israel keys. Cause we don't really, cause he, he took a lot of the particulars about his, about his victims to the grave with him. Um, but mm-hmm. um, he, you know, there was one, he, he had a wife and a child. He had a daughter. And um, because he had a daughter, he would never pick victims with children. Yeah. He, 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 had, he had sympathy for those people. He, he identified with those people. Right. And, well, what, and, and it's like, you know, the, the, the notion that serial killers – because of what they do in one area of their life, that they are, um, that they have no feelings in other areas of their life is just untrue. I mean, I was talking to my, my Sufi teacher about this actually mm. last month. And, and I said, one of the things I, I had to recognize, I mean, we, we, th- we think of people who do these terrible things. We think of, oh, they're just like animals or whatever. Animals don't do this. Not like this. I mean, animals can, you know, depending on the animal, they can murder or they can torture like their prey. But, but, but what human beings do is different. Right. It takes a certain kind of focus, a certain kind of an imagination. This is gross, but it's true. And, you know, serial killing in the manner that we think of it now is a peculiarly human thing. Um, it actually requires human faculties to do it. And when you think about it that way, then you're like, oh, <laughs> you know, um, it's, uh, it, 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 it's sort of humbling. I want to ask you this about, about serial killers. I mean, I've, I'm one of those people that is morbidly fascinated by this stuff. Don't, don't ask me why. Um, I, I wasn't until this happened. You oh see, yeah, yeah. You know, I, I mean, sure. I actually, I actually wasn't. And after this happened, you know, I did. I went, I I went deeply into it and 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 research. I've researched it because I wanted to understand. You know, I wanted to come to terms with things. Well, I, I've talked to um, some friends of mine that do uh, a podcast called Thirteen O'clock, and we're going to have them on here probably in a couple of episodes. But they're talking about how. They, they talk about serial killers, true crime kind of stuff a lot. And, you know, it seems that in recent years, like serial killing has really kind of dropped. It's not as prevalent as it once was in like probably like the 60s, 70s, 80s and into that time frame. Um, and I really wonder just is there an outlet now? With how you, I mean, just I'll just go ahead and say it: how ubiquitous porn is, whether or not there's some kind of outlet for some of these guys that they can just get their jock, they can get their jollies off with this, and they don't have to actually, um, uh, actually act out these crimes or like actually physically kill somebody. I, I don't know. I mean, I don't really know what the statistics are. Um, I mean, you know, I would have to do some research with the FBI to mm-hmm. find, find out what the, what the, what they think the actual statistics are. I mean, my understanding is that, you know, it, 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 it varies in, in terms of that it's more cyclical. 
Um, it may be that because of the internet and because of the ability of, of people to access things um, on the dark web, that, you know, it may be that it's possible for people to have more vicarious experiences. I don't right. know. Right. You know, I, I don't know. Uh, you know, I think that it, it just sort of, I think that it sort of depends. I mean, um, I, I, my understanding is that there's, is that there's at least between 35 and 60 of them present at any given time in, the, in North America mm -hmm. on average. And that seems to have been true for a while. Now, we don't hear about them quite as much, I don't think. Um, and, I, and I don't know why that is. I know that they've become very popular in pop culture, which I find really weird <laughs> personally. You know, it's like, you know, Jeffrey Pritchett, who I really, you know, is my, who's the host of Church of Mabus, the podcast that I participate on. Right. Um, he, you know, he, he loves things like Dexter and Hannibal and stuff like that. And I cannot watch that stuff at all for yeah. obvious reasons. It's like, because I'm sorry. You, you, you knew the real thing. Yeah, I knew the real yeah. thing. This right. is not this is not entertainment to me, and um, and I I think that I think that we're fascinated by by the the power that we think they have. But what's interesting is that I always experienced when I thought about Bob's situation. I always experienced him as feeling like he was the victim mm. that he didn't have power and that that's the reason why he was doing what he was doing. Yeah. A way by which to assert power. So many of them have horrible childhoods and it seems that, that, that he was another one that, that, that had like, you know, a, an abusive childhood, um, you know, so many of them have been just like they're 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 so mistreated, and it's something that like in that time and age just bred monsters. Well, you know, I don't know. I mean, he, I mean, he was abused in some ways, but right. he was he wasn't. You know, and I would I would say that he was more emotionally neglected. Mm -hmm. um, and which probably was not uncommon for, you know, um, men of his generation. I mean, Jeffrey Dahmer wasn't, wasn't um, abused at all. Uh, and mm -hmm. he, he had one incident um, that occurred uh, where he was sexually molested by his neighbor, but his, his family was not abusive. In fact, right. he, in fact, he disabused, he was like, you know, he refused to say that because he he was going to take responsibility for what he did. Um, I think he knew he was a monster. Yeah. Oh no. I think he knew yeah. he was a monster, but you know, I think that what I'm saying is that he, he refused to permit um, his family to be blamed and to, to the day of his death, his father, insisted on remaining in relationship and insisted on trying to understand him, right. love him anyway. Right. Right. And so I, I get, I guess that um, that's kind of what I, you know, I mean, I can't say that I loved Bob, but you know, I, I guess I kind of decided the same thing to, to remain Bob's friend because um, 
Mother's Day is almost here, and you can get her the most beautiful time-tested gift around. A watch she can wear every day for movement. Whether mom's into classic dress watches, rare and refined ceramics, or tried-and-true bestsellers, movement has something she'll love. And right now, you can save big on the best Mother's Day gift ever with up to 50% off site-wide during Movement's Mother's Day sale at MVMT.com. Again, that's up to 50% off at MVMT.com. You know, maybe, I, maybe I'm just sort of loyal that way, but also because to, to, to quit being his friend is to cut off the possibility of learning. It's to cut off the possibility of, of, of figuring out um, what this, what the lesson surrounding this could be, you know, what different lesson could be, could be um, derived from the experience and from, um, and from having this relationship with this person who had done these horrific things. Um, and I wasn't willing to cut myself off. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, Whatever that makes people think of me, I don't know. But you know, I, I I can I can say that I had, you know, I had some really weird kind of paranormal psychic experiences surrounding it. Particularly once, you know, in the in the time period immediately after um, he was arrested, um, in the story that I had you read, the short story that I wrote, where I kind of talked right. about this right. stuff, um, I describe in that story um a ritual that that the the person the narrator conducts in order to try to figure out um to to figure out the truth about the situation and that is a a brief description of something that i actually did attempt to do right after he had um been arrested at the time i was working in an occult lodge and i also was doing neo-pagan stuff you know and some buddhist stuff and um and so i decided at the when he was first arrested he was first arrested as i mentioned for sodomy because Mm -hmm. sodomy at the time you know was illegal in missouri and this was before we knew what else he'd been charged with uh, or what they were going to charge him with and so i had done this ritual Because what I was going to do was try to just sort of, I was just going to try to go into a light trance and just try to figure out what was really going on. You know, and that's all. That's all I was going to do. I wasn't going to try to contact him or, you know what I mean? What school of occultism were you drawing Uh, upon? uh, uh, Well, the the lodge that I was in um, was called the Temple Isis Sophia. And it was um, kind of a cross between... um, Crowley stuff, Crowley okay. forms, and some Gnostic stuff. So it was, okay. it was, okay. it was kind of a. There's a, there's a, um, an author uh, for Llewellyn. His name is Frater Barabbas. Okay. Oh yeah. And I and, know the name. And, yeah. And well, and I, I, his, his, his mundane name is Brian Watling, and I knew Brian when. Okay, so <laughs> Brian was in Kansas City at the time, and he had started this lodge, and so I was in the lodge, and uh, we, and he and I had also known each other through the pagan community, and so you know we, 
I had learned a bunch of stuff from him and I was practicing stuff and I was just learning meditation and certain kinds of occult practices, you know, um, some of which I still use actually, um, the ritual parts of them. And so I had just, I wasn't going to like do anything complicated. I was just going to set up a safe space and just, you know, a sphere and just um, kind of open a veil a little bit and just kind of get a glimpse of if I could see what was really going on. Because like I said, at the time, I didn't know about all the other charges. You know, there was no way to know this. And what I describe in the book was that I opened the veil and it was, and I can tell you something walked right into the room. And it was, I can't even, it's really difficult to describe because it's hard to believe, but I did this in broad daylight and all of a sudden everything got dark in the room. I had, I mean, I had natural lighting on and everything got dark in the room and it wasn't clouds. And there was this darkness that came in the room and it got so cold in the room that I could, and this was in, you know, this was in April when this happened. Um, he was, in fact, he, the, the anniversary of his arrest is April 8th. So um, it was, you know, warmish outside, but it got so cold in the room that I could see my breath. This is true. This really happened. And there was this presence and I could, and I, it was like this huge darkness, like this pit, this darkness, but there was a presence there and I could feel his presence, Bob's presence there, like a shadow um, in front of kind of silhouetted, if you will, against this darkness in the back. And this darkness was like, it was like, it was, it was almost like it was trying to pull the veil open wider is what it felt like. It was terrifying. I was so scared. Nothing like this had ever happened before that I just, I was sort of petrified. And I didn't really say anything. I didn't say like, Bob, you know, is this you or whatever? I, when I heard what in my voice, I heard Bob's voice in my head and he said, shut it down now. Oh my God. And I did. I just went, I just, I physically sort of, you know, acted like I was shutting the veil and I just, I just grounded with everything I possibly could. Cause I very good grounder. Do you think that there was something attached to Bob? I think, yeah, I do actually. I mean, I came to the conclusion that, that he had sort of stumbled into this, that he had, you know, he had started out with, you know, his predilections, his impulses, you know, and that somewhere along the way, <coughs> he got maybe something that was attached to something that he'd purchased, you know, that was in his house. I don't know. But he had, at some point, he had um, encountered something or had made a decision to go in a particular direction. Because actually, Jeffrey Dahmer talks about this, too. In, in, in one of his interviews, he talks about this darkness that he encountered in himself, the stranger. Dennis Nilsson talks about this, too. Uh, Dennis Nilsson is a, is, a, is a serial killer from the U.K., and how he encountered this darkness in himself that he finally just permitted to take over. Dennis Nilsson said that uh, he, he was always trying to kill himself, but it was the other person who died. And which is one of the most honest things I've ever heard anybody say. Um, it's also an excuse, but you know, 
Um, but I do think that there was something there and, and I shut it, I shut it down and I successfully shut it down in the, in the story. I, that character, the narrator doesn't successfully shut it down and that's uh, or doesn't know whether they shut it down. And that, and that right. in the story, that's a reflection of, of the sort of terror, this, the this trauma that I carried with me. Right. This story was kind of like your way of dealing with this whole situation. Or expressing certain yeah. parts of this. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Man. Uh, yeah. Um, I, I, I wonder about that. And, and, and not to say that I don't believe in free will, because I definitely do. And I believe that people people can be evil and they can pull these things off and they are ultimately responsible Oh yeah, but at the same time, I mean, I'm a, I'm a huge believer that there is this other world and that it can influence us. And some of these entities are out for blood. I mean, they 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 demand sacrifice. Well, they're parasitical. Yeah, and and I do think that if you cross certain thresholds, um, and torture and murder are among those thresholds. Anger is a threshold. Fear is a threshold. Um, but if you if you cross certain thresholds, or even sometimes witness the crossing of certain thresholds, so that you know that that threshold is there, that that the trauma of that, the psychic tearing of that, makes you vulnerable. Some people vulnerable to um, especially if you don't have any other kind of mooring, you know, like I've had lots of traumas in my life. Obviously this is one, but I've had others too. And, but one of the things about that I've been fortunate in, and maybe it's just me, I don't know what it is, but I've, I've either had people that have been present that have been able to help me or I have had a certain kind of spiritual connection at a certain point that, that has assisted me. But if you don't have those things, if you don't have the, the, the support if you, or, if, or the connection, or you don't have a, a spiritual a spirituality, something in yourself that, or in others that you can depend on, then I think it leaves you very vulnerable, to, especially if you're sort of a weak person anyway. And, this, and I, what I mean by that is that I do think there are some personalities that are more prone to this than others. I don't know why. And I'm not trying to say that it's connected to astrology or anything like that. Bob was an Aquarius. Most serial killers are actually, um, are actually mutable signs, which is kind of weird <laughs> statistically. What do you mean by that? Uh, a mutable sign is like a, a, an airy, a, a, no, a Pisces, a Gemini, a Virgo, a Sagittarius. Okay. Um, it, for people who know astrology, they'll know what I'm talking about. But he, but Bob was an Aquarius, which means he was a fixed sign. And there aren't that many serial killers actually that are fixed signs. Um, there have been studies on this actually. Um, Fixed signs tend to be mass murderers. They don't tend, if they're going to murder anybody, they're going to be violent. They tend to be mass murderers rather than serial killers. But um, 
so I don't think it's anything like that. What I mean is that I just think that there are some individuals that for whatever reason, they're more porous than others. And um, when they do certain types of things, they bring it in more than other people. You know, they're more vulnerable to being having attachments uh, or, um, or being possessed, you know, whatever you want to call it, being connected, you know. So, you know, I don't know which of these things he was, but I do think that there was something behind what he ended up doing. Mm. Uh, because when, when I, there was one period of time when I had a more extended conversation with him and he talked a little bit about this, about how he sort of back, got, he sort of backed into uh, the, the torture murder stuff. You know, it started, it didn't start all at once. It wasn't like he suddenly had this idea that he was going to do all this. You know what I mean? And it just was something that grew over a period of time. And his first victim, the first guy that killed, the first guy that died, um, he didn't kill. The guy died of, of the torture. He, had, he may have had an underlying health condition, in fact. But whatever, he just died of, he died of the torture. And so um, then Bob, you know, crossed that threshold into that of having to dispose of the body and having to do all of that. And then it was like, well, what's the next thing? <laughs> you know what I mean? It's, it sounds really gross, but that's sort of where that stuff leads. It, it becomes an addiction. Yes. You know, it becomes, it becomes a, um, I, I mean, probably one of the best television shows if you're going to watch something like this it doesn't glorify this at all but netflix has a series called the fall which i don't know if you're familiar with but um no i'm not actually but, uh, but um jillian anderson um who's of course <coughs> you know the goddess of various things she she plays the principal um detective who is hunting a serial killer now i will tell you it's a brutal show there were parts of it that were really hard for me to watch it's pretty explicit um but she's hunting a serial killer who also is a kind of sadosexual serial killer um although he's a little more typical in some ways but it's much more it's not so much about his crimes although they do delve somewhat into the crimes obviously it's about those other parts of him. Because in his in the in the instance of this serial killer, he is able, he is able to have a double life for a while. Kind of like Gary Ridgeway had a double life for a while. You know, he he's he has a he has a wife and he has two children. And um uh and he works as a counselor, as a grief counselor. And because he's known a lot of trauma in his life, he's actually relatively decent as a grief counselor until it all sort of comes to a head. Um, and the other th interesting thing about the show is that it's premised in Belfast in Ireland. 
So um, you get to see kind of how um, an entirely different style of, of law enforcement agency mm -hmm. does the investigations. So if you're used to like a real American approach, this, it's a very different kind of social approach to how you deal with this. So it's kind of interesting that way. But um, the, the film, the, the series does go into the other parts of this, of a serial killer. In other words, it, it's really trying to get you to see, we, we see, seem to see these people as really one dimensional, you know, summarized entirely by the worst things they did. Mm. And, um, and, and, and there's some logic to that because that's sort of how they impact the rest of us. Right. But that's not all they were. Right. And, and we also have to remember that when we do that, we are making their victims only victims. You know, their, their victims were people too. Right. Uh, yeah. That's, that's the main thing that we have to remember in all of this, that these, these were people that they lived and that they died horribly at the hands of somebody that had a bunch of problems. Yeah, it was fucked up. I right. mean, the right. whole situation is fucked up. It's right. a fucked up situation. Let's get into this in the time that we have left, Professor Wham. I want to talk about um, the Franklin scandal and the uh, connections between Bob and this because you do say that there are some connections to that um yeah i mean there were connections that i was able to figure out over time um and and i don't know how have you have you talked to your listeners at all about what the franklin scandal was supposed to have i, I, I have i have mentioned it before on probably past episodes i mean it's it's something that um it's something that I am very aware of. I've watched the like documentary that the discovery channel basically banned back in the day. Right. Well, let me, let me reiterate that like the discovery channel, like um, they pretty much uh, did not air the documentary about the Franklin scandal. Right. Well, and see that to me is part of the interesting issue about this. And what I would what I would encourage your listeners to do if they you know if they're interested in this is there's a book, <coughs> excuse me, that's by um, uh, Nick Bryant called mm -hmm. the Franklin Scandal. Yeah, I'd like to get him on the show. I'm, I'm, and and I may, I may approach him about that. And the reason why it's important to know about th this scandal. I mean, there's two main reasons, and I'll just briefly go into each. The first reason why it's important to know about the rumors surrounding the scandal um, is because, well, first of all, this scandal broke in the late 1980s and it was connected initially intimately with the collapse of the uh, savings and loan industry in the United States uh, in the late 1980s. And the reason why the scandal even emerged was because uh, there was a savings and loan uh, firm that had a number of outlets in Omaha, Nebraska, that was run by a guy named, ironically, Larry King. 
right. uh, not the Larry King of media. This was a different guy. And uh, basically what happened was that Larry King made, made, his, biz, made his money at the, at the savings and loan. Um, at least ostensibly he made it. Uh, the, the savings and loan, it tur- savings and loan um, project that he had uh, was intended to serve uh, lower income people in Omaha and Nebraska and other parts of the Midwest, uh, specifically members of the African-American community, but also um, just poorer people, people who would not necessarily have opportunity for banking, you know, in, in certain rural areas, for example, that would, it would be more difficult for them. And part of the reason why this scandal sort of quote unquote came to life is because um, of the, the savings and loan collapse, because it turned out that many of, if not most, of the savings and loans that, um, that Larry King had, were, were running were, was in fact a fairly elaborate pyramid scheme and that he had actually built lots and lots of people out of money. Well, it also turns out that he himself was in fact involved in human trafficking and drug trafficking in particular. There right. was never any dispute about this with regard to him. Okay. But, but what, it, but it turned out and it's entirely too complicated to go into all of it, but it turned out that, um, According to the witnesses, many of whom started out were initially individuals who um, were were older people who older teenagers or younger adults who said that they had been trafficked by him, um, that they were able to trace certain elements or accuse the tracing of certain elements of this uh, sex trafficking and drug trafficking syndicate, essentially. Um, is what it amounted to, um, uh, to Boys Town, which was a fairly well-known um, boys' school in uh, Nebraska, as well as um, th- throughout various drug and sex trafficking rug, um, rungs, uh, hubs in the Midwest, and eventually, you know, all the way to Washington. So basically, if you think about QAnon, you know, what QAnon is supposed to be, right? I'll, I'll just say this. Um, the, the Franklin scandal was supposed to be sort of on that level. Now, it, what is interesting about the Franklin scandal is that a lot of the, a lot of the um, more wild conspiracy theories surrounding it did get completely out of hand. You know, for example, you know, there were, there were rumors that of course you had cannibalism and, you know, Satanism and, you know, the the satanic panic thing and everything like that. Um, And that this was supposed to involve, um, you know, probably, I don't know, really important members of the Republican party, you know, and uh, especially the, the power elite in Omaha, in Nebraska, but also in some other places in Washington, et cetera, et cetera, sex parties in Washington, stuff like that. You know, in some ways, now that we've heard about QAnon, it all sounds sort of old hat, right? Um, it sounds like, uh, it sounds like, uh, you know, the, the movie eyes wide shut, yeah, absolutely. Which I believe that QAnon just draws on this material 
And they basically weaponized this material. Right, exactly. Now, if you read Nick Bryant's book on the Franklin scandal, he doesn't necessarily believe the really weird stuff, you know, like about cannibalism and satanic panic and all that kind of stuff. He doesn't necessarily believe that at all. Um, But he does find, I think, convincing evidence. And this evidence, when I was reading this book, I realized that some of the stuff he was saying was similar to some of the questions that 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 policeman was asking me. (laughs) And, um, you know, in terms of like times and places and and, um, certain kinds of activities, you know, Um, and I, so one of the things that you have to ask yourself is since Larry King was eventually indicted on uh, obviously, you know, banking fraud and that kind of stuff, but he also did serve time for human and drug trafficking. And then when he was, when he was, you know, he served his time or served a certain amount of time and then was just sort of released. Now you tell me, do you really think somebody who's done this in the past is not going to do this again? Right. First of all, this is how they make their money. All right. Um, and what, what Nick Bryant does talk about is he talks about the, the various links that he finds between witnesses and, and um, certain weird FBI cover-ups that are clearly cover-ups, the disappearing of evidence. Um, and it's not that he thinks like the whole Republican Party is involved or anything like that. He, I mean, actually, his, his charges are, are much more modest, but in some ways more severe. Because what he argues is that all that really happened with the Franklin scandal is that Larry King tapped into a, a, a trade uh, in, in humans and in drugs that has always sort of existed in the American subculture. And there are various sort of uh, low-level syndicates that are involved in this. And it does involve some um, it does involve some politicians. It does involve uh, the FBI is aware of it uh, to, a, to a certain degree. It, it does involve certain um, elements of law enforcement. You would have to have those players present in order for it to retain any kind of, of continuity. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, and his concern is not that the Franklin scandal as it blew up so big was, was all a hoax because see, that's, what's really, really interesting. If you, if you look up the Wikipedia article about it and I'll just pull it up right here on my phone. If you just read this about it, um, it's, it, it says, um, The Franklin child prostitution ring allegations began in June 1988 in Omaha, Nebraska, and attracted significant public and political interest until late 1990, when separate state and federal grand juries concluded that the allegations were unfounded and the ring was a 
carefully crafted hoax. Mm. Now, what does that mean? Carefully crafted. What, 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 what the evidence that, that Nick Bryant presents in, in a book that is like almost 500 pages long. And keep in mind, this guy is not, he's not a fly-by-night person. Um, he, he has dedicated his life, his investigative life, to um, unveiling various, and work with law enforcement, to unveil um, various components of, of human sex trafficking, drug trafficking, disadvantaged children, He's been published in the Journal of Professional Ethics, the Journal of Applied Developmental Psychology, the Journal of Social Distress and Homelessness. I mean, he's actually very well known in the areas of, of, uh, of you know, trying uh, with the organizations that are trying to expose and get rid of human trafficking, children trafficking. So he's not like some crazy conspiracy wonk, right? But he actually um, argues that he wonders whether um, the the scandal itself, not not the drug, not the human and drug trafficking, but the blowing up of it into, you know, this carefully crafted hoax, that that hoax part of it was a disinformation ploy. He actually questions whether this was not the whole the whole thing wasn't. Uh, the rumors surrounding it were not actually a, a, uh, a black ops of some kind mm-hmm. um, to cover up something that was really going on. And um, that, I mean, the, the evidence that he assembles is pretty extraordinary. I, I mean, it's like 500 pages worth. Um, and he's, and he has, and he talks about where he, you know, the FBI has stymied him. And, and he's run into a lot of the same roadblocks that, you know, those of us who try to do research into paranormal stuff run into all the time. Sure. Which is one thing that's really weird, you know. And what's, what is interesting, too, is that um, this is like one sort of large scale scandal or conspiracy in American culture that somehow someone somewhere has successfully managed to keep media from talking about. And, wow. you know, media will talk about these things all the time. I mean, at the, I mean, even the discovery documentary that you were talking about, at the very least, they could say, well, there was this, you know, because we've had documentaries on the satanic panic. So they could say, at the very least, they could say, oh, there was this crazy conspiracy that blew up and it happened in the late 1980s and it happened to do with this. And it was, but it was later proven to be, you know what I mean? They could do that, but they don't, they don't talk about it at all. And the reason, part of the, what part of the reason that has always sort of interested me is because uh, the whole the story about you know I mean everybody is like really fascinated like you said in our culture with serial killers, but nobody talks about Bob Rodella. Bob sure. Rodella is just not talked about. Yeah, he he's one that I have not really heard about. Yeah, he is not talked about, and and there is there's there, I do I do not know whether this is true. There's no way for me to verify this. Okay, but this is a persistent rumor that I heard, 
in the in the in the year or two afterwards. You know, and I heard this from I did hear this rumor from a couple of decent sources. Like one of the sources I heard this rumor from was someone who worked as an assistant for 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 one of the for the DA in Jackson County. So it's it's not like, you know, they were just stupid on the street rumors, right? But um, I, I heard a rumor that there was a that there was a reporter who had come into town and wanted to do an investigative series of reports on Berdella and wanted to try to do research specifically on the drug trafficking angle that he was connected to because she had uncovered some interesting evidence. And I've always wondered whether this had to do with the Franklin scandal because it was during that same time period. And that she assembled quite a bit of information, including from a couple of informants from the police department in Kansas City, Missouri. And then all of a sudden, she all of a sudden she she literally like burned her notes and left town. Mm-hmm. She just disappeared. And I, you know, like I said, I have no first person verification of this but i heard this story from a decent source and you know somebody that i basically trust so you know i i don't know what to think about that you know it's kind of like there's a whole bunch of stuff here that nobody's talking about and and which means that whatever can if there is a conspiracy or a syndicate or whatever that's there it's still there you know it's still going on yeah, it very well might be. Um, there are things about the Franklin cover-up that is wide-reaching. Um, I don't know if you have seen the documentary "Who Took Johnny Gosh." Have you seen that documentary? I have not. Who took okay. John? Okay, Johnny Gosh, G O S C H. That is. Um, a very good one to watch because it actually is about this paper boy that at the age of 12 or 13 is abducted. And the mother believes that it gets all tied in with the Franklin cover up scandal. Okay. And he was actually abducted from West Des Moines, Iowa, which I mean, if you do the, the distance between that and Omaha. That's very close. It's very close. Kansas city is very close. It's all, it's all very close. So, um, there was this kid that was involved and, uh, Bryant mentions him in this interview that you had sent me. I can't remember his name, but he apparently, uh, testified and the judge actually, upheld his testimony and uh, he testified that Johnny Gosh actually was part of the whole um, was actually part of the Franklin cover-up that he was one of these kids that was that was trafficked, that was trafficked right and, and, and all this I think is real stuff um, you know it's it's hard because I think that like the Pizzagate stuff and yeah. the QAnon stuff has just really, really just like poisoned the water. No, I agree. I think, see, I think that, I mean, I, you know, the, 
my understanding is that the original QAnon stuff, I mean, the guy who's doing the QAnon stuff now is not the guy who started it. And I, I don't remember who the first guy was that, you know, where QAnon first began, because that's been actually several years ago. Um, I think that, you know, QAnon actually began prior to Trump and just became associated. Well, it, it, it's, it stems out of Pizzagate and it's, it's basically a LARP. It's a live action role play. Right. Right. It's the same kind of thing that like Joseph Matheny was doing with Ong's hat and John Teeter back in the day. It's the same stuff. Right. And, and uh, you know, it's the thing about QAnon is that the, the QAnon and the rea- and, and the, uh, the, the weaponization, as you say, of QAnon has made it very, very difficult uh, for people who actually do attempt to liberate people from these syndicates mm-hmm. who actually are trying to really solve the problem of human trafficking. Yeah, it's 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 muddy the waters. Yeah, horribly because you know it's 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 made it so that you know on on one level nobody you know everybody believes it and nobody believes it. Everybody believes the weirdest crap, but nobody believes the stuff that just can actually happen. And I think that that's, to me, what was important in understanding uh, about the Franklin scandal when I read Nick Bryant, because he really concentrates not on the wild rumors, you know, not on the crazy stuff, but he really focuses on you know what the evidence shows where does it lead there are a few places where it does lead to powerful people and a few places where it does lead to law enforcement but you would expect it to lead to those places because those you know there have always been some people in politics or in law enforcement that have been involved in these kinds of things. It's corruption. It's just simple. It's, it's simple corruption. Exactly. You know, so, so none of that should surprise you, but all of the, 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 you know, the over the top stuff, like in eyes wide shut, you know, all of that stuff like that is not necessarily is not, um, is not what he's concentrating on. You know, as we were talking, I don't want to belabor this too much, but as we were talking, I suddenly remembered, uh, the whole story that the whole subplots or set of subplots that you have in Twin Peaks, where you have this one girl who dies, this one girl who's murdered. But then what you find out in the course of the unwinding of that story, you know, and then subsequent to that, you know what I mean, later on in, in the return, is you find out that there are, in fact, um, there are, you know, it, you know, the, the murder, the murder or disappearance of any young person, you know, uh, or, um, you know, the torture and killing of any person, as we were talking about earlier, any of that stuff is pretty gross. Any of that stuff um, is pretty traumatic. But you find out that, you know, in Twin Peaks, you've got two things that are going on. You have, you have the human and sex trafficking and drug trafficking that's going on in Twin Peaks, but you also have other stuff. <laughs> you know what I mean? You have, you have Leland who kills his daughter. 
and has been having an incestuous relationship with you, with her. But you also have, you also have Bob. Ironically, the other Bob, <laughs> you know, the, 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 not, not Bob Berdella, but Bob of the Black Lodge, who is, is the paranormal parasite. So, you know, if you, it's like on one level, you just have a father who's doing these horrible things and, and there's, and his daughter is connected to this drug and, and sex trafficking sort of operation that's happening, you know, between the border of Canada and the United States. But on the other hand, you also have this, I guess we would call it this evil supernatural element, because you know what, even if you don't believe it, that's what it feels like. Well, I wish Serfiel was here because he has actually seen Twin, Twin Peaks and I have never. So Yeah, okay. So yeah, but I mean those people who've seen Twin Peaks who hear this, they'll know what I'm talking about. Because there's this, you know, one one at one point in the in the first series, uh, the first, you know, version of Twin Peaks, after Leland is exposed as being the murderer of his daughter and he's dying because Spoiler Bob, alert spoiler alert because he's dying and and bob has bob has left his body and has has physically injured him to the point where he can't live anymore in the process but he forces he forces leland to to relive and remember all the things he's done to his daughter which is horrific to to contemplate and after all of this happens, there's this scene where, you know, all the law enforcement guys are all together and they're talking and, and the sheriff is saying, yeah, but all this stuff about Bob, this stuff about Bob possessing him, this couldn't be true, right? I mean, this Leland just had to have gone crazy, right? And, and, uh, and Agent Cooper says, well, you tell me, is it more comforting to think that that a father would would sexually assault and and murder his own daughter is that more comforting than believing that there is an evil spirit that possessed him <laughs> and that roams the earth and feeds parasitically off people and makes them do these things i mean you tell me which makes you feel better <laughs> yeah. and and you know so that, that's 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 one thing that i wonder is whether or not like we ascribe a lot of this stuff to, to demons even though i just talked about you know bob being possibly demon possessed whether or not whether or not that's just a coping mechanism for a lot of us well it might be it, but it to me it doesn't have to be either or you know right. um i mean i think that part of the reason why um when people when the public are confronted with the possibility that this dark stuff happens around them, you know, like there's a Bob Brudella or there's a, or there's a drug or sex trafficking ring around them or something. What ends up happening is one, one of the ways they do cope is by is that's part of the reason why all these conspiracies uh, extra stuff develops you mm -hmm. know about the satanic rituals and the cannibalism and stuff i mean some of that stuff does happen there are people that do cannibalize other people obviously but usually it doesn't um but i think sometimes the reason why these rumors get started and and become believable is because the simple reality 
is also horrific. You right. know, it, it's also horrific. And um, I, I mean, you know, I, I guess the part of the reason why I, I, I ended up writing my experiences in a horror story is because that's sort of a horror I have to live with. Right. Being, being exposed to all this and being exposed to this guy. Professor Wham, I, I have to tell you, this has been a pretty amazing interview of talking to somebody that was like, you know, pretty close to a serial killer. I don't think that like there's very many people that get to talk about this. And I'm really happy that you wanted to talk about it on this show in particular. Well, yeah, I'm, 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 I'm happy that you, I'm very happy that you uh, permitted me to do so. We didn't get so much into chapel, the chapel perilous as I wanted to. Well, let's, let's get into that. What, uh, what, what type of chapel perilous did, did you get into because of this? Well, you know, part of it is because, you know, when, when you think about these things and, and you're traumatized by them, you start to wonder about your ability to perceive reality correctly. And mm-hmm. you, I can you, understand that. And you begin to, you begin to wonder whether you can trust your own perceptions of things and your own perceptions of people or even of yourself. And I went through a period of my life where um, I can, I thought that, well, you know, if, if it was possible for me to, you know, maybe, maybe part of the reason why, and this is what I was studying this whole serial killer thing, you know, trying to figure it out. Um, I mean, I can certainly kind of understand. It's like I say in the story, I can, I can kind of grok how a person could, could get to a place. And this is just intellectually. I've never gone there emotionally, okay? But intellectually, I can kind of get to a place where I can kind of grok that, that murdering someone might make a kind of sense, you know, with a certain turn of logic. Um, you'd have to be in a certain frame of mind. You'd have to have a certain kind of emotional um, crisis going on. You know, you'd, you'd have to have a certain kind of desperation or sense of powerlessness. But um, I have certainly, I have certainly felt powerless. There was a time in my life when, you know, I was abused physically and sexually by my father. And so there was a time in my life when, uh, when I was young, when um, I wanted to kill my father because it was like, because I was so angry at him. I was so angry at what he had, what I felt he had done to me. And I was so angry by how trapped I felt um, that I felt like, you know, if there was any way I could kill him, I would, but I was younger, you know, and, and then ultimately, obviously I didn't want to really kill anybody. I just wanted the pain to stop, you know? So, but um, so on a certain kind of intellectual level, I could sort of grok, where why a person might go to that length or be driven to that place out of a sense of desperation or passion, perhaps. Um, so I began to think, well, maybe if I can go there, maybe if I can kind of understand that, maybe that means that I'm sort of bad like these people. You know, maybe there's some part of me 
that is just, you know, kind of dark and evil too. And so I used, so I thought that way of myself, I didn't do anything with it. I didn't harm anyone or, you know, I just felt really bad about myself <laughs> right, <laughs> for, right. for, for a yeah. while. Yeah, I can, I can understand that. Right. And, you know, and also the fact that, you know, I could sort of deal with his darkness, you know, I could sort of, you know, now I know it's because I grew up in such an abnormal situation that I just kind of have a high tolerance for weird and abnormal. And I don't necessarily think that, like I said, because someone is screwed up that they're a serial killer. So, you know, I, uh, but because I thought I was so a terrible person, um, I, I felt like I should be punished. And so I lived for many years of my life, I lived in a world where I was punished all the time. I would sort of create things like I would create accidents for myself or I would create um, illnesses for myself. And I would, I would, I, they, these were ways of punishing myself because I felt like I needed, I needed to be punished. My father, I mean, I'd also been raised to be punished. And my father, one of the things my father told me when I was young was that he thought that, that, that I consorted with demons. Mm. And so, um, and that he could see the spirits moving in and out of my room, which always pissed me off because it was like, I can't see him. So like, why can you see him? But, <laughs> you know, but I was also devastated by that, obviously. And so it was like, I already sort of had that idea that there was something wrong with me. So um, I created a lot of really weird kind of weird psychic situations in my life and was really paranoid. And so um, what, you know, cause what the chapel perilous is really about is not being able to tell if something is really paranormally happening or whether you're creating it somehow or reading into it. You know what I mean? It's sort of like the self self perpetuating prophecy, <laughs> <laughs> you know, in your, in, that you become that, your life becomes that. Sometimes I think that that's what, like, at least for some people, what a lot of men in black situations are, you know, um, not, not all of them necessarily, but some of them. I'm like, for example, one of the things that happened in my life is I went through a period of like six years where at, for six years in a row, in different places where I lived, I was in a tornado, which is bizarre. I mean, even in Kansas, what are the odds of that? You know, uh, and obviously I didn't get hurt or anything, but it was just like, you know, at some point I was like, what is this tornado business? <laughs> you know what I mean? You know, or I, I would just have these weird experiences. I mean, if I were to like, like log all of my weird, bizarre experiences for people, they'd be just like, what? What is mm -hmm. wrong with you? You know, mm -hmm. and that's that's what I mean by Chapel Perilous. Now I know that some of that was because I believed I deserved it. I believed I needed to be scared all the time. And you can and did you come out of it? Yes. I have mm -hmm. I have largely come out of it. Um and that happened, let's see, it's only started happening about well, it happened once I moved to New York, actually. Mm -hmm. We moved away from Kansas City. Um, the place of my haunting. <clears throat> um, but even because I, st I started to spiritually grow in different ways. And the, probably the most important thing that I, I took up, I mean, Sufism has been a, an important component of that, actually. Um, but also um, having 
getting away from an environment or, or purposely putting myself into environments where I had to practice different kinds of thinking and different kinds of emotional um, structures. Yeah. Um, I, I started doing something that's called Rasa Yoga, which is an, it's an, a, a yoga you use with your emotions. And uh, I, I, and it, it, I mean, it's not like it's a miracle, but it helped a lot. And then I've also, I've also done a couple of other healing modalities that have worked with that have helped a lot, but there is something to that whole chapel perilous thing. And I can tell when my mind is starting to sort of drift into those places again, I can feel it, you know, and it's like, no, can't go back there, you know, because the truth is, is that, if you're, if you're a normal person and you don't have like a psychological problem, you know, like a physiological psychological problem, mm-hmm. like a chemical problem, mm-hmm. you can actually change how you think. Yeah, I, I, I understand that because I've, I've been there. I've been through my own Chapel Perilous. Um, probably for like two years ago, I went through my own kind of thing. So I, I, I totally understand where you're coming from. And you just have to make a decision that you're not going to, you're that you're not going to go here anymore. Right. You're not going to do this anymore. Right. Right. I think I'm reaching that point now, actually. Well, professor William, this has been incredible. I, I have really enjoyed speaking to you about this. Um, uh, please tell everybody where they can find like your writings and the short stories that you um, have, have, have written one of which, which is about this experience. Um, well, the, yeah, you can go to my um, website, professorwham.com, and 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 the wham is W H A M, so it's professorwham.com, and both the books that um, I have readily available um, are advertised on that website. Um, not only this, this is uh, the story. It's called Head Dreams, I believe, and it, it's in a a small collection of Lovecraftian sort of stories called a uh, final, final season, a Lovecraftian quartet. And then I've also written another book, a mysterious beauty living with the mm-hmm. paranormal in the Hudson Valley, which is what we talked about previously. Right. We talked about that last time. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, it's been awesome having you on. Uh, please stay on the line with us guys. Uh, I will be back to close out this episode on Conspiranormal. Welcome back to Conspiracy Normal. Very interesting interview with Professor Wham there about uh, Bob Bordella and her relationship with him. I mean, there was some interesting personal stuff that was really related in that interview, and I'm uh, I'm hoping that, that it's all going to come across. Um, uh, probably one of the best shows that. Um, that I have really done um, some interesting personal ex- perspectives. And the only person that I can really think of that has, well, been in such proximity to us to a serial killer. So, you know, that there were a lot of questions. Um, thank you guys for tuning in uh, as usual, the usual spiel. If you guys are interested in going to the Patreon 
please subscribe to us at patreon.com slash conspiranormal. There's a lot of things there. Uh, Going back all the way to the end of 2016, you guys can find uh, for um, $5 a month, plenty of material to go back and listen to that will take you some time. Uh, So please check that out. Also, Tickets to the Strange Realities Conference are now available. That is going to be linked up to the website and uh, also to the show notes. Uh, You guys can find that there. I'm going to link that to the strangerealitiesconference.com website pretty soon. So where you guys can actually find tickets. That is going to be a hybrid event coming up October 15th through 17th of 2021. And we are really looking forward to it, guys. So uh, please check that out. Attend either way, way you can, either by coming to Nashville at SIR Nashville or being uh there virtually all right that's it guys next week we are going to be doing something called the conspiratorial campfire uh with our friends from the unawatch crowd we are going to be doing that uh that is something that my cousin jason von stein is going to be putting on and we're going to be talking to him and steve stockton will also be joining us on that show and Sergio will be back as well so join us next time goodness on Conspiranormal if you would like to help the show please consider becoming a Patreon www.patreon.com slash conspiranormal or leave a one-time donation at conspiranormal.com and please check out our YouTube channel Conspiranormal Podcast